0: By Eliza Gilkinson. It's also your introduction to activist radio. We offer history you didn't learn in high school. We have a couple news stories you haven't seen in the New York Times. And we have a few musical selections to get you in the mood for the resistance. Activist radio can be heard Thursdays 8 to 9 a.m. on KBOO. They're at 90.7 FM in Portland, Oregon. Thursdays 11 to 12 noon on WRFA and they're 107.9 FM in Jamestown, New York. Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR and 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Thursdays 7 to 8 p.m. on WBDY and they're at 99.5 FM at the Bundy in Binghamton, New York. Sundays 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. on WESU they're at 88.1 FM at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Sundays, 4 to 5 p.m. from WIOF. And they're at 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. Sundays, 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network. Find them at prn.live. And finally, Mondays, 11 to 12 noon on WCAA. And they're at 107.3 FM in Albany, New York. Past programs are available as a podcast. Search on Activist Radio or go to classwars.org. You can see our last 10 programs. You can listen to the programs there. You can see all the different connections that the various guests have made, uh, internet uh, connections to uh, help you really learn about what we talk about each week. Our guest today is going to be Raz. She's a Jordanian-Palestinian researcher and artist. And We talk about her being part of the diaspora. And how views about the U.S. and its commitment to human rights are changing in light of the Israeli genocide in Gaza. Which brings me the views and opinions expressed on this program, not necessarily those of this station, its board of directors, not even its constituents, just the views of me, Fred, and I'm bringing you up to date on America's hidden class wars.
1: Screams, the people's day will come. Helen Goldman sang the song for you. Big Bill Haywood and Mother Jones, too. Psycho and Vanzetti, they took care of life.
0: That's the People's Day by Otis Gibbs. It's the introduction as well to the first part of Activist Radio. We try to remember the history of social struggle. It's certainly a history you didn't learn in high school because the people who run this country people who bribe our politicians, they're not interested in the history of social struggle. They want to suppress that history, so you never think that there's any way to change things except by voting in the voting booths. So this is a reminder of what the leftists have achieved in our history and should give us some encouragement and motivation to try to make a better society of all we have. All right, we go in history, history you didn't learn in high school, to January twenty-fifth, two 2002. A group of Israeli reservists issued a declaration saying that they would not serve the Israeli Defense Force if assigned to the occupied West Bank or Gaza Strip. It was called the Combatants' Letter, and the organization, Courage to Refuse, grew out of their resistance. Captain David Zonshine and Lieutenant Yanov Itzkowicz, officers in the elite unit, realized that the mission assigned to them as commanders in the IDF had in fact nothing to do with the defense of the State of Israel, but were rather intended to maintain control of the occupied territories at the price of oppressing the local Palestinian population. Within three months, 69 such refuseniks had been jailed. 627 Israeli soldiers ultimately signed the pledge. Over 280 members of Courage to Refuse were court-martialed and jailed for periods up to 35 days as a result of their refusal. Selective refusal to serve has been around in Israel, well, since the late 1960s, when soldiers were told to occupy the territories won by Israel in the 1967 war. The 1982 war in Lebanon saw the birth of another soldier's movement called Yesh Guvul, and that in English is um, a limit or border. These soldiers remained active resistors during the First Antifada in 1987. Together with courage to refuse and another anti-war draft organization, the number of refuseniks grew to over a thousand. In January 2002, during the Second Antifada, 51 combat reservists published a letter explaining their refusal to serve in the occupied territories. The letter said that the reservists no longer would, quote, rule over, expel, starve, and humiliate a whole nation, Ultimately, close to a thousand signed the letter and supported the movement. Many were discharged, and hundreds served short prison terms. But 20 years later, the anniversary of the letter went by almost unnoticed, even on social media. According to historian Professor Yegil Levy, quote, courage to refuse showed that a group of upper middle class secular Jews who were part of the core of the military can suddenly turn away from it. It was groundbreaking, a groundbreaking event, and the army was deeply concerned by it. Unquote. Since then, long prison sentences handed down to Israeli teens refusing to serve has taken its toll on the left. Combat soldiers are now recruited from the national religious sector and the low socioeconomic periphery of Israel. Soldiers from the educated class are diverted from occupation duty. We know how such draft resistance movements have been crushed in other countries. In the U.S. critics of the draft were jailed for opposing the First World War. Even giving a speech opposing the war could get you a few years behind bars, as it did for Eugene Debs, the Socialist Party candidate for president. He spent almost two years in jail. And yet the anti-draft movement was a huge problem for the U.S. military during the Vietnamese War. Not only that, the soldiers in Vietnam could no longer be trusted. Sometimes they just refused to go out on patrol. Sometimes they murdered the officers of their own battalions. The killings became so numerous that it was given a name in our media. It was called fragging. By that time, the anti-war movement in the U.S. was almost unstoppable. It defeated Lyndon Baines Johnson, the Democratic president, at the height of his power and influence. LBJ, as he was called, decided not to run for re-election after he came close to losing in his first primary. In fact, the current marches and rallies against Israeli apartheid that we see almost every day in our country come closest to the anti-war movements of the late 1960s. And maybe this is the only way to stop Israeli genocide. For Israel is America's puppet colony. Without U.S. support, Israel would be shunned and ostracized from the international community. Like all failed states, including South Africa, Israel would eventually pay the price for its racism, its warmongering, and its genocide of the Palestinian people. So the way to stop this genocide is in our very own streets. We're going to go to a song now. This is a song by Blackbird Dread. And the song title is, We Are All Palestinians. Let's listen to that. J. Mankita, they lied. It's a lead-in to the next part of Activist Radio. We take a look at the media in the U.S., how it supported Israel and uh, still does for the most part. We've even made a web page for these stories, it goes back at least 10 years, uh, called fantasylandmedia.org, where we look closely at the failings of our corporate controlled media. We think all the news that you read in the New York Times on down is made by the people in charge, the Pentagon, the corporations, and unfortunately, your very own government. Well, our first story is from Manda Weiss. Uh, Manda Weiss is a politics and uh, Jewish uh, philosophy uh, online discussion that is really very instrumental in making sense of Israel-Palestine Manda Weiss. Quote, don't believe Haratz and New York Times. Israeli society fully supports the Gaza genocide. Harats and New York Times are peddling fantasies about how genocidal incitement in Israel is only coming from the extremist fringe. But evidence shows that there is near universal support across Israeli society for the genocide in Gaza. An editorial in Haratz last last week, as well as a piece by the New York Times' Michelle Goldberg, a few days later, told a similar story. Both articles portrayed the genocidal statements by Israeli leaders, and both articles explained them as an expression of far-right extremism. Herat seemed to suggest that the solution, which would uh, protect Israel at the International Court of Justice, would be for Netanyahu to fire his extremist ministers. Goldberg's article takes it even further, suggesting that Netanyahu is also part of the problem. However, there's a story that is not fully told in these two main liberal outlets. Both ignore the evidence and the polling that's shown near-universal Israeli support for the unfolding genocide in Gaza, both from the Israeli political class and the vast majority of the Israeli population." Well, I wonder if the German people were as wholeheartedly behind Hitler's extermination plans for Jews, gypsies, and gays. I think it's a topic that really must be discussed and not hidden away in supposedly liberal newspapers like the New York Times and Haaretz. That's how our media fails us in Israel and the U.S., not covering these issues, essentially hiding them from the public. Our second uh, story is from Common Dreams. Gaza's children, already reeling from 102 days of U.S.-backed Israeli bombardment that has killed and maimed tens of thousands of them, are now dying of starvation, with adults likely to soon follow. As famine rapidly grips the besieged Palestinian enclave, doctors and United Nations officials said this week, Hundreds of thousands of Gazans, half of whom are children, are starving as Israel's bombardment and siege have quote, "brought famine with such incredible speed to the front of the lines." Unquote. This is United Nations Under Secretary for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator, Martin Griffiths. He said that on a Monday interview on CNN. The Guardian reported Tuesday that doctors in Gaza say that newborn babies were not lasting more than a few days because their undernourished mothers are unable to feed them. Quote, not only is Israel killing and causing irreparable harm against the Palestinian civilians with its indiscriminate bombardments It is also knowingly and intentionally imposing a high rate of disease, prolonged malnutrition, dehydration, and starvation by destroying civilian infrastructure, the experts continued. Salau Tibi, an aid worker and mother of four, told CNN her children are, quote, screaming all day from hunger. Well, this weekend, the New York Times had a big story on Israeli women serving in the IDF. Very little on starving children. One day, our newspaper of record will pay for its pro-genocide reporting. And I hope it does. And I hope I'm alive to see it. Well, the last uh, story is from uh, Common Dreams. Open AI, which of course is artificial intelligence, uh, cuts military and warfare ban from permissible use policy. Although the company's new policy stipulates that users should not harm human beings or develop use in weapons, experts said the removal of the military and warfare language leaves open the door for lucrative contracts with the US and other militaries around the world. Quote, given the use of AI systems in the targeting of civilians in Gaza, it's a notable moment to make the decision to remove the words, quote, military and warfare from OpenAI's permissible use policy. And this is Sarah Myers West, managing director of AI Now Institute and former AI policy analyst at the Federal Trade Commission, and she told uh, The Intercept uh, her opinions on this. Well, AI has certainly the brightest of futures. Now it can kill innocent, helpless civilians without being bothered by military bans. And the New York Times didn't think this story was worth printing. All the news that the military-industrial complex thinks is fit to print. Oh wait, we got a um, song coming up now. This is from David Rovics the song. He's put out a new album, by the way, of really hard-hitting songs, uh, mostly about uh, Gaza. So this is uh, from the album, and the name of the song is Famine and Disease. Let's go to that song.
2: In the places they reported, If you listen to the news, you'll hear the press conferences and the words they choose to describe the facts on the ground. In the Gaza Strip, you can hear the measured phrases, see the trembling lips, uttering words so rarely spoken. Eyes open wide as one official after the other speaks of genocide From the head of each department you can hear the powerless pleas The next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease As the fighter jets rain missiles down from way up in the sky As the tower blocks collapse with each mission that they fly As the hospitals are targeted along with everything As the cameras show us the apocalypse they bring With no buildings, with no homes, when no structure remains. Once it's all been leveled by the ships and tanks and planes, every medical practitioner around the earth agrees. The next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease writes a blank check to facilitate the slaughter Biden says he told them to let in the food and water but they're not and nothing happens but more destruction everywhere white phosphorus burning any skin exposed to air actions making clear that annihilation is the israeli regime's plan for the palestinian nation if you survive the bombings you don't burn or freeze the next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease across the world from yemen to algeria militias on the move from lebanon to syria while on the gaza strip If they have a working phone, they're trying to tell us all Don't just leave us here alone Don't look away, as this happens again While this world still has Palestinians Because for all these refugees descended from other refugees The next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease
0: Uh, quite a song, David Rovick's Famine and Disease. Wow, that really uh, tells it like it is, doesn't it? A really shocking song. Well, these are shocking times when our country is involved in a genocide. We've all grown up with genocide being the ultimate uh, crime against humanity, and yet to see our country and to realize how involved our country is in arming, supplying, supporting a country, killing killing millions of Palestinians. is just, it's hard to come to terms with that. You either have to go to sleep or not think about it, or maybe train yourself to, to hate the other, to hate the Arabs. Uh, train yourself that they're really just nothing but animals Um, Anyway, I have a little bit of time. We'll play um, another Class Wars point of view, and here it is. Germans have always been criticized for knowing that the Holocaust was going on and doing nothing to stop it. In truth, during the actual genocide, speaking out against a wartime Nazi regime meant almost certain death. Even passing out leaflets at the University of Munich got a small group called the White Rose arrested, tried, and beheaded. And that was done in just four days. Their second of six leaflets had denounced the persecution and mass murder of the Jews. The German people slumber on in dull, stupid sleep and encourage the fascist criminals. Each wants to be exonerated of guilt. Each one continues on his way with the most placid, calm conscience. But he cannot be exonerated. He is guilty, guilty, guilty. Unquote. Today we are free to criticize our government's arming and protecting Israel as it exterminates the Palestinian people. Using the latest U.S. weaponry and drones, Israel's making the home of over two million people into a world of rubble. The IDF, self-proclaimed as the most moral military force in the world, has slaughtered over 10,000 children and cut the rest of the population off from food, water, and shelter. What bombs can't accomplish, starvation and disease surely will. Well, this is a genocide aided and protected by the murderers who run our own government. Their pockets are lined with millions of the Israeli lobby money. Uh, take a look at OpenSecrets.org if you'd like to know just how much. For example, Pat Ryan uh, got 37000 last year, and Christian Gillibrand pulled in uh, $174,000. So why aren't you speaking out? Still slumbering in dull, stupid sleep. All right, that was uh, Class Wars Point of View. Um, And we're going to go to our guest now. Uh, This is Raz. She's a Jordanian-Palestinian researcher and artist. She talks about her moving to the U.S., uh, being part of the Palestinian diaspora, and she gives us her views uh, on U.S. commitment to human rights, for example, uh, in the light of Israeli genocide in Gaza. So let's go, let's talk to Raz. All right, Raz. thank you so much for joining us today on Activist Radio.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: You are part of uh, what uh, people call the Palestinian Diaspora, and can you tell people what that means Uh, I don't know if you have like even figures on it uh, how many millions uh, but you want to tell us a little bit about the diaspora and maybe even how long it's been going on
3: yeah yeah sure Um, truthfully my understanding of my identity and like what label best describes me has shifted a lot over the years. Uh, my father was born and raised in the West Bank um, in a village called Beta near Nablus. And he left in the 80s for education in Jordan. Um, and he just settled there with my mom. They get married and had us. And um, in Jordan, um, there are a lot of Palestinians. It's, uh, I think, in Amman, 50%, Amman, the capital, 50% of people in Amman are from a Palestinian origin so growing up there um it was a very important question that people would ask each other where are you from it's a very tribal place that people identify a lot with their clan and tribe and um it was important to to identify there as a palestinian for them to know that we are the refugees Mm -hmm. and for us to kind of like cling to our identity and not forget who we are so I definitely felt part of the diaspora there, but when I left, when I was twenty-one, I left Jordan to Europe and then to the States. And interestingly, people ask me where I'm from, and then I'd say I'm I'm Jordanian uh, because I grew up in Jordan. Sure, sure. And and part of it was one the fact that I grew up in Jordan, but two, it felt safer for me to say that I'm from Jordan than to say I'm Palestinian. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I felt like I need to own my Palestinian hood again because of the erasure, the uh. cultural erasure that is happening. I felt like I can't abandon that identity and maybe it's mm. not safe and maybe it will scare some people to know I'm Palestinian, but I need to say it. And mm. I kind of put that label back on um, and felt like I'm now part of the diaspora, which you know, to, your, to your question about how many, I think maybe seven to nine million um, mm-hmm. Palestinians are scattered around the world today, and I'm, I'm proud to be one of them.
0: Sure. Uh, when you went to uh, Jordan, uh, was your treatment uh, akin to treatment in Israel, uh, an apartheid regime, lots of racism um, how about the community of Palestinians in Jordan? Did they um, were you afforded uh, equal equal rights and uh, mm. possibilities of going to education and things like that? That uh, wasn't really true in the West Bank, and certainly not Gaza.
3: You know, um, yes and no. Um, as a child, uh, you know, I was twenty one when I left. So, you know, I was I was really young. As a child, we got teased a lot by the Jordanian, Jordanian kids uh, who would, as, you know, like when kids argue, would always tell us like, pack up your stuff and go back to where you came from. And oh, there was I that kind huh. of racism that, of course, they mm-hmm. hear from their parents' kids, right? Sure. Uh, but also, uh, nepotism is big in Jordan. Uh, people, you know, referring people to jobs or hiring ah, people their huh. relatives <laughs> is... Uh, we call it vitamin wow for wasta, which means uh nepotism or some something mm. like that it translates to it and as a result of that um a lot of Palestinians didn't get a good positions at work it didn't get promotion I see right it mm. was, you know and my dad who's um a professor in the university in uh in Jordan he Really struggled a lot with with that and felt mm. really disenfranchised and often wanted to go back to the West Bank, but you know my mom didn't want to raise her kids in an occupied territory and, sure. with an uncertain future. So, so we stayed. Mm.
0: Yeah. That, that that's so similar to uh, I took a trip to Belfast maybe four or five years ago and talked a lot of uh Catholics who were oppressed during the troubles uh, it's amazing how close that is to what's happened to the Palestinians you know they were not given access to, to jobs or the university or housing in, in all areas the the Protestants they call them the prods uh, you know took most of it and so they were certainly second-class citizens uh in their own country actually in northern ireland so Mm -hmm. i have a question though about u.s democracy does it look uh strange um there's so many democrats who are favor in favor of a ceasefire for example i think there's like 65 percent of democrats and yet almost all the democratic leaders (laughs) I I probably shouldn't be asking you, I should be asking me, why are the leaders so adamant about continuing the slaughter, you know, even when their own party is uh, in favor of a ceasefire?
3: Yeah, you know, I'm a freshly sworn American. I've only been American for a few months. Um, So I'm new to democracy. Um, so far, it looks to me like democracy is the, <laughs> the freedom to buy whatever you want, whenever you want. <laughs> yeah. but, but in reality, like what it, what it seems like happening is that campaign donations and other kinds of monetary contributions or threats of withholding those contributions is what's really influencing our elected politicians. And if that's truly the case, um, then I don't know what organizations or individuals are rich enough or invested enough to mm. try to make that happen to make them side with the majority mm. and so that's that's really sad like our our own elected official Pat Ryan received um I don't know how much. Was it twenty eight thousand from Well, APAC?
0: Actually, I keep looking it up. It's on Open Secrets. They've just revised the numbers. He got revised up to thirty eight or something thousand in the most current counting. But he, he gets a lot of money. Yes, he does. Yeah. Pat Ryan. And
3: and they're one of his top donors. Um I think the top donators are individuals and that's um the names of those people are not released. But among organizations, the uh, mm. APAC, um Is a big one. So
4: um,
3: that explains why, despite all our pressure on him, we've been meeting up with him. We've been um, protesting in front of his office. We've been calling every day. And his position is still very much Um, pro-Israeli. So, you know, putting money aside, I think the other kind of pressure we can put is voting. And I don't know. My question is, that's something I'm not clear on. One, is the diaspora and our allies here in Ulster County, are we big enough to move the needle on voting? Mm. And Mm. the second thing I think about is who are the alternatives if we don't vote for Pat Ryan in this kind of political structure we live in? Um, Mm. The DSA has been amazing, the Democratic Socialist of America. Just
0: amazing, huh? Just makes (sighs) you realize, gives you a little confidence in our democracy in a little way. You know that they are yeah. so outspoken, you know, and so active, right? Yeah. And um,
3: I mean, can we get enough people to vote for a DSA candidate in the primaries? Hmm. Do you think?
0: Yeah, that that's one possibility, or you know, um, I think that that's probably the the biggest way to try to get more DSA people. Uh, you know, actually voted in and the members of uh, either the state government or the federal government, I think that that's definitely uh, one way to sort of overcome this. But uh, I think democracy looks great from afar. It looks like it's working, but the closer you get, the more you realize it's just, (laughs) it's just payoff. You know, it must be uh, disconcerting to you know what it looks like is not what it really is. But uh, I'm I'm wondering about these recent uh, events. We have just amazing number. As a matter of fact, I'm going to uh, one this afternoon uh, in Poughkeepsie. These events are called in about three days, three or four days. Everybody gets together. Everybody organizes like crazy. Uh, on signal, actually, um, mm-hmm. not other, you know, other ways of communicating. And they they get people together. It could be 15, it could be 30, could be 45. We haven't really seen this in our history since the 1960s mm-hmm. when, you know, uh, people were taken to the streets every, <laughs> every week. You never know it, where they were going to be. Uh, so does this... Uh, Does this give you any hope? Uh, It also involves the integration of Jews and Palestinians, um, which is, I think, so different than we're brought up to believe that Jews and Palestinians can work for a free Palestine. So does this uh, give you hope?
3: It does. I mean, seeing how many American Jews have shown up and spoke against the atrocities of Israel, and the genocide mm-hmm. has has really been incredible and heartwarming, and you know, like you said, they've been organizing and running and amplifying Palestinian voices, and you know, beside the DSA, JVP is the next, you know, like the other big organization in Ulster County um, mm-hmm. that has been organizing. So, I think, you know, in my eyes, what Israel is doing and has been doing actually led to more unity and more conversation than division. Of course, there are some people in our community who are still walking around with a completely distorted view of reality, uh, thanks to our, you know, imperialist American government and the propaganda machine. Um, But but overall, I'm seeing more conversation than ever. People can Mm. talk about Palestine now. This this recent event has opened the door to talking about what's happening in a way that we couldn't before. So that mm. gives me hope. At the same time, I didn't know if our government listened. Even if the entire country came out on the street, I think the motivations of the American government to continue funding Israel has nothing to do with what people want. and Because this is not an ethical... Or moral stance that they're taking, this is a position they're taking to protect their interests in the Middle East mm. and they yeah. have an interest in having a nuclear armed superpower in the region, mm. so this is a military decision it's it's not an ethical war they're playing, so i don't know without like dismantling the political structure that we live in, if we can really see change just by going out on the streets I mean has mm. Any of the protests that you've seen in the 60s and you've taken part of, um, have they made a difference? Have they, uh, were they the reason the war was over in Vietnam?
0: In Vietnam, again? Th- that, that's, that's such a good question. I wish I'd asked you that question uh, <laughs> instead of you asking me because um, it's, a diff- it's such a difficult question. Um, there was a time when we had uh, President Johnson uh LBJ we used to call him and he was a warmonger. Uh he's very very good on social security and healthcare for seniors. I mean, uh integration he was uh, really a wonderful president when it came to that, but he fervently believed in the Vietnam war for whatever reason, maybe stopping the communists or maybe it was money. Uh but <clears throat> we had uh A primary in uh I believe it was New Hampshire, maybe you know this history but um and a professor who was a member of the Senate ran against him and almost mm-hmm. won and he uh, l b j was so frustrated and so upset that <clears throat> a sitting president might lose a primary yeah. that he resigned about two months later. He said, "I'm not running for re-election," and uh, it just opened the whole uh, machinery of government again. But, and I don't think too much good happened from it. Uh, We nominated Hubert Humphrey. The anti-war group yelled "Dump the Hump" every time he arrived any place because he was in favor of the war. Another Democrat. So Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't really vote for any established candidate and richard nixon won of course he was the worst and another trump really yeah,
4: but yeah.
0: there was this time when uh, a democratic president was pretty much forced out of office because there was such uh, an organized resistance to what he was doing and i think that that's eventually why we pulled out of vietnam i think is you know first of all the troops were getting to be dangerous they wouldn't go out on assignments in vietnam they and mm-hmm. if you push them too hard they they would kill their officers and so suddenly the us couldn't really win in a condition where the troops weren't obeying anymore so there's this constant pressure and the pressure uh in the services itself um Vietnam veterans against the war once they got out they were of course they joined uh, anti-war groups so in the end I think it actually it might have been the demonstrations that uh, filled the streets for for years and years you know it it, it might have actually resulted in the end of that war but you know that makes
3: me th- yeah it makes me think about Biden right now he is looking very weak in this upcoming election and you know very weak very (laughs) weak and i wouldn't be surprised if he pulled the same move and just resigned under the pressure um because he his chances are looking so slim right now and you know nobody's believing in him but you know more than biden and more than trump and all of these nixon and um i i think what what this situation this year has proved to us is it doesn't matter what face is is there if it's biden or trump the end result is the same because a prerequisite to being an american president seems to be you got to be on board with the war and mm. it it seems like their positions are different on um domestic issues like abortion like immigration right um but on in foreign policy it is the same. It's Maybe the yeah. narrative looks a little different. Maybe, you know, what they say on TV, maybe Trump would have been a lot more aggressive um, than Biden is being right now. But in action, it's, it's all the same, regardless yeah. of who's there, Bill Clinton, Bush. To us, it's well, that's the same.
0: The, that's the great American secret, is we have two parties, but really only one, you know, ruling class, and, and they own both the parties, so... That's the mm-hmm. that's a bad secret. Um, we're talking about the 1960s. We had teach-ins, oh my goodness, everywhere in the 1960s. And uh, you're part of a teach-in uh, yourself. Can you describe what a teach-in, um, you know, in our era uh, is all about and maybe even how it runs?
3: Yeah, totally. So I've participated in one teach-in so far, and there's another one coming next week. And it's really such a great platform to sharing different points of view on the subject, talk about personal experiences and um, knowledge. In the first one, my co-panelists were um, Lori and Mark, who are both Jewish. And they're very Mm -hmm. compassionate, super well-informed people who spend time in Palestine and Israel. And the moderator um, would ask us a few questions. We all took turns answering and discussing. And then we opened it up to the audience to ask questions. Um, So that's uh, the forum it it has. And it was hosted in a church the first time, which which was really great to have that sort of space for community um, be used for community for all of us. You know, they opened it Mm -hmm. up for everybody to come in. um, So it was a wonderful space and had that like, you know, beautiful, like spiritual context to it. Um, The second one is going to happen in Ryan Beck and Upstate Films. And we have a fourth panelist, another Palestinian, uh, Mm -hmm. who's going to join us. And um, people seem to be really eager to understand um, the situation and to get language. The event Mm -hmm. got sold out, I think, in a day, the upcoming one. Um, It's a free event, but we had RSVPs because last time, We filled the space in five minutes and there were 70 more people that we couldn't um, have because of, um, you know, the the space was was filled. So people are really eager to come and discuss and learn because this is the worst atrocities of our lifetime. Uh, Of our lifetime. uh, Our lifetime, 24,000 people or maybe 25 today, 1,000 people killed and 1,200 Israelis, um, civilians. This is traumatizing and horrific. The Israel brought destruction upon Gaza, which is an open-air prison. There's no place for people to go. They tell people to go somewhere, and then they bomb that place, and they bombed universities and mosques and hospitals, and there's nothing left there. It's complete destruction, and we're watching it streamed live beat by beat on social media and yeah. that's the other thing people never had that much access to what's happening on the ground because of mainstream media is selective about what they show to you know perpetuate certain narrative but today you can't escape the reality it's all mm-hmm. posted on social media from the ground minute by minute so yeah Even though they have
0: tried to kill so many journalists. I mean, we're up to over 100 journalists uh, killed. And that that can't be a mistake. You know, I think they're trying to kill the journalists so the stories don't get out.
3: Absolutely. uh, They killed two Al Jazeera journalists last week. It was really heartbreaking, especially if you, you know, watch the news. These are people that you start getting to know and, you know, you appreciate and you admire their courage. And then the next thing you see is a photo of them dead. And you know yeah, why you yeah. know why they've been killed, and this often is a with their family crime.
0: family yeah. members as well, you know i mean the house is bombed, and you know fifteen people you know are killed um yeah. well, we don't actually have very much time, and uh maybe I'll try to pick a last question here um, How has the media been as far as reporting and i I think the media has been incredibly bad over the last, you know, several decades. No stories about Palestine ever make it in, made it into the New York Times. The Times had uh, writers that were all Israeli citizens uh, with deep ties to the Israeli state uh, doing all the articles, um, and there was hardly any voice from Palestinians at all. Do you see that changing in the New York Times or um, in other media that, uh, even local media, are they more apt to print an alternative point of view?
3: Um, A little bit. I think the American mainstream media has been really slow to come on board Mm. and talk about what's happening and the bias towards Israel is clear in the language they use like. Mm. If they talk about numbers of Palestinians dead, they say the Hamas-run health ministry reports external dead. Iran-backed Houthis have fired a missile, but you never hear here US-backed Israel has bombed the refugee camp after telling people to go there and indiscriminately Mm. kill men, women and children. So Mm. the language, the narrative is still very much behind. But some stories are coming out, and if you see NPR's um, uh, re- reporting in the past month, you're like, okay, all right. I'm not mad at that. I thank you. Yeah. You're coming on no. board. You're talking about what's happening. Um, so, you know, it's it's getting there. The local media, Hudson Valley one, if you look at the letters to the editor section, you'll also see, you know, they print what we send them. They're not censoring people. So that's very, mm. that's very good. Um, the reporting still, as I said, there is a Israeli bias towards it. Uh, sure. But, you know, they lose complete ethical uh, and, and uh, sorry, not ethical, but they lose people trust um, if they don't print anything and if they don't talk about what's happening. So they have I to do it to not lose credibility.
0: With the people on the street, they have to they have to report it. I think. Although the New York yeah. Times, we had this huge demonstration last weekend. Of Four hundred thousand, possibly, or five hundred thousand, wasn't in the New York Times, you know. Mm. So the, I'm not surprised. <laughs> York, I do no, subscribe to
3: the New York Times, so I don't have, you know, I don't have to worry about what they say that say. because it was, just, <laughs> uh, it was it was just so upsetting. I was like, I don't need to give them any more money. Um, but you yeah. know, there are resources out there. Democracy Now, is wonderful. Yeah. such a wonderful yeah. outlet. Um, the Middle East. Um middle dot net and Al Jazeera mm-hmm. are two middle eastern right. um, yeah resources or so like to to check out yeah. um sources of news even
0: the even then, the uh, common dreams and and the guardian sometimes has good ar- articles as well but uh
3: yeah yeah, and also so, like in instagram so many accounts you could just go and see direct reporting from the ground um yeah. and not just wait for News sources to tell you what to think because they're all there is no completely unbiased news mm. source out there. Um, yeah. Perhaps Democracy Now! is the most unbiased I've seen so far. Um, but yeah,
0: and uh, what, what is it? 972, the Israeli uh, website mm. that criticizes the occupation is really um,
4: excellent as well,
3: yeah. right?
0: Yeah.
4: yeah. Yeah,
3: so, yeah it's a Palestinian-Israeli well, run, um, cool run. It's, it's a wonderful resource.
0: Just wonderful. Raz, I want to thank you so much for uh, being on today and, and talking about, I think, what is such a difficult uh, subject for anybody from Palestine. And uh, not only are the Israelis uh, doing terrible things, but the U.S. is paying for the genocide. And it's just such a difficult time, I think, even for Americans to think that their country, country that they, you know, belong to and supposedly is for human rights, uh, is supporting a genocide. It's a difficult time, actually, for all of us. So thank you, Ross, for being on.
3: Thank you for having this platform and for continuing to talk about these issues. Um, We need more people like you in the world.
0: Oh, thank you, Ross same uh, same goes for you so thanks so much
4: uh, all right have goodbye now yeah. bye bye bye
0: radio can be heard Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, Sundays 4 to 5 p.m. on WIOF 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York, and Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM. Past shows can be heard on classwars.org. Please like our Facebook page, read our Class Wars blog for commentary on today's interview. We'll be here next week at the same time to help you become part of the resistance.